Well, good evening and welcome. My name is Stephen Tuck and I'm the director of the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities, which just about spells the acronym TORCH if you uh, include a the word the, and uh, ignore some other words. And it's uh, my great pleasure to welcome you to the Torch Digital Humanities annual lecture title there. Um, as about half of you here will know, this lecture sits in the middle of the Digital Humanities at Oxford Summer School Week. The other half of you didn't know that, so let me just explain a little bit about that week, um, say a few words about it, or rather just give you a few statistics which I find very interesting. 167 delegates here in Oxford, 83 speakers, including over 50 from Oxford, eight parallel workshops through the week, and plenty of other lectures, keynote sessions, and so forth. What this means, I think, is that the summer school is now the second largest in the world, the largest outside, not America, but outside Canada. And... Uh, I think probably more pertinently for the organisers, it's nearly double in size from last year. So this is a good moment to thank, to congratulate the organisers, James Cummings and Pip Wilcox there, and everybody else involved in putting together this week, which so far, I understand, is, is running extremely well. And our thanks to the various stakeholders within Oxford. It's very much a collaborative exercise. So the Bodleian Libraries, IT Services, the Oxford E-Research Centre and the Oxford Inst Internet Institute are all involved. And our thanks also to the sponsors, particularly the HRC, but also Oxford XML, Ashgate, OUP, UCL Centre for Digital Humanities and Imperial College Press. So a lot of thanks to, I'm guessing, many of you here. Now I'm about to hand over to Catherine Eccles to introduce our speaker. My great thanks to our speaker, who I know is flying off first thing tomorrow, so it's very good of him indeed to come tonight. But I'm going to introduce Catherine, to introduce him. Um, many of you will know Catherine as Oxford's first digital humanities champion. What a great job that must be. Oxford has more digital humanities activity, I think, than any other university. And Catherine's role is to sort of raise awareness of that activity as it's spread right across this very large uh, university and to develop cross-university research and training, and to promote and ad advocate for, or rather to champion, hence the title, the cause of digital humanities within the university and externally, um, in partnership with many people here. Uh, Catherine seems to work tirelessly on this. Um, very exciting to have her doing this role. And a particular thanks from me at Torch, because Catherine is taking the lead on putting together Torch's headline series next year, which will be Humanities in a Digital Age. So in fact, if you're hearing that, it makes you think, I've got an idea of something to do in that series, please find Catherine afterwards. Well, the best introduction in the middle of a very busy week is the shortest one. So I will stop right there and hand straight over to Catherine um, to introduce our speaker. Catherine, over to you. Thank you, Stephen. I'm going to be equally brief. Um, and just say that we are really privileged uh, here tonight to have with us um, Michael Doherty, Cancer Research UK's Digital and Strategic Marketing Planning Director. I hope I've got that right. 
Um, after roles at Telstra, Yahoo, Hutchinson Telecoms and Fairfax Digital, Michael joined uh, Cancer Research UK in late 2007 as head of online marketing, then later becoming head of digital before moving into this new director role. So all week we've been talking about digital transformations. In the last year, Michael has continued to build great digital capability into Cancer Research UK and has really driven the transformation of Cancer Research UK's websites to make them robust, responsive, social, open and above all user-centric. In March this year the quality of the new site was really put to the test through the no makeup selfie meme where eight million pounds was raised in just a few days and the site ran smoothly despite the huge visitor volumes that went, really went off the charts. Engaging with a huge community like those involved in the No Makeup Selfie meme presents, I'm sure, a really huge opportunity, um, but also a huge challenge. Um, and these are challenges that we've been talking about all week. How do you deal with a data deluge? How do we cope with millions of users, uh, visitors, followers that are distributed across uh, various different uh, social media? How do we make sure that we get our message across uh, clearly and succinctly? And how do we make sense of the message that we're receiving, the information that we're getting from those audiences? How do we make responsible and ethical use of technology? Um, and who can help us with that? What teams of people do we need to succeed in this very complex environment? These are just some of the challenges that we're all facing to a greater or lesser extent. And I'm really delighted to welcome Michael Doherty to tell us all about how he has risen to those challenges. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it is such a pleasure to be here today. Um, I'm Michael Doherty. I'm the director responsible for digital and a few other things at Cancer Research UK. Um, it feels a great privilege to have you come along and listen to me today. So I hope to give you a bit of a sense of what the digital revolution is doing to our world, the world of charity and fundraising, and what we're doing about it. So I thought I'd just say a few more words about my background. Um, I've been in the digital game for 16 years um, and I've been with CRUK for almost eight years. My career was digitally disrupted back in 1999 when I was asked to create a new website for the organisation I was working for. Trust me, this was not a privilege at the time. I wanted to work on a TV ad. Fortunately for my reputation, you will not be able to find that website on the Wayback Machine. I have checked. I actually check quite often. Um, it was a total and utter UX fail, and it set a record for page load times, but I learnt a lot doing it. And from there, I eventually found my way into Yahoo and a few other organisations, and I've had digital roles ever since. Now, in case you don't know much about us, I'm just going to share a bit of background about Cancer Research UK. We're the world's leading cancer charity dedicated to saving lives through research. Our vision is to bring forward the day when all cancers are cured. We raise over half a billion pounds a year to fund 4,000 scientists, doctors and nurses, and our work is across all types of cancer. Research is at the heart of what we do, but we're more than research. We turn our work into action. With the insight that we have every year, we help millions of people get the information they need to understand their disease. And together with our supporters, 
We campaign on key cancer issues, including access to cancer drugs, screening and reducing the use of tobacco, just to name a few. Our pioneering work into preventing, diagnosing and treating cancer has helped double survival rates in the UK over the last 40 years. Just a few examples of the things we've done are the research that we did to help develop a drug called cisplatin, which is used for men with testicular cancer. This is actually a cure for most men. Our research has led to new, drug for, new drugs for skin cancer patients, including one of the first new drugs for melanoma in over 10 years. And from a financial perspective, we became the first charity in Europe to raise more than half a billion pounds, and that happened last year. Our ambition now is to accelerate the pace of our progress so that we see at least three in four people survive cancer over the next 20 years. To do that, we need to raise a huge amount of money. Charity is a very tough sector. We face very similar challenges to many commercial organisations. It keeps getting harder for us to make money. We're affected by the economic situation and we have to fight hard to attract and keep talented people in our organisation. We have to keep doing more work to keep ourselves relevant to our customers and our marketing just does not work as well as it used to. In the digital world, like everyone, we're at the mercy of a few powerful organisations for our audience. So Apple, Google, Facebook, and to a lesser extent Microsoft, essentially control the platforms that most people use to experience the digital world. They are, at the very least, strongly influencing our internet behaviour. They also set standards and requirements through which they decide what people see and what they discover when they're using the internet. And that, of course, affects organisations like ours in very fundamental ways. The charity sector's income is around £37 billion, or that was two years ago. Half of that comes from statutory sources, so from the government in some way. The other half comes from fundraising. Cancer Research UK doesn't receive statutory funding for any of our work. So did you know there are 163,000 charities in the UK? That is a huge number of competitors who are competing for the public's attention, for our attention. And because of the digital revolution, it is cheap and fast to get a cause in front of an audience and to get them supporting that cause financially. Now, I had assumed the digital revolution was making us more generous. I'd never really looked into this. I just assumed that was the case. So I was actually hoping to announce for the first time today that that was a fact. But it actually probably isn't the case, so we're not really sure. So this is the only chart I'm going to show with numbers on it. Um, so I did a quick bit of analysis to look at internet use, the bars, um, and the va average value of FTSE 100 companies and voluntary income. So the blue line and the pink line, pink line being voluntary income. These felt like useful data points to try and get a read on how generosity is, is changing. Um, now, I fully accept that this is in no way robust or scientific. This was just to get an idea of generosity. Has it changed? Does it look different? So doing this analysis, some interesting outcomes um, came out. So the changing shape of voluntary sector income is closely tied to the changing fortunes of the stock market. That's probably not all that surprising. 
Just look at those two lines. You can see they're nearly identical in shape for most years except for the last couple. What's interesting is there is a strong correlation between internet users and voluntary income, but there is virtually no correlation between internet users and FTSE values. I'm not exactly sure what that's saying and I'm not drawing any conclusions, but I think it's interesting that there's a difference in those correlations. So what I'm going to take this as meaning is that the public's generosity definitely ebbs and flows with economic circumstances. Um, its generosity absolutely is being shared around an ever-growing number of players, and it could possibly be affected by the rise of the internet, but we're not really sure. Either way, fundraising is a very tough game, and there are more and more charities doing it because the barriers to entry in this world are really very low now. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what we do digitally at Cancer Research UK. Over the last couple of years, it has become a strategically important part of our business. The CEO and the executive board pay attention to digital. It is firmly on their agenda. And we're now one year into our third digital strategy. Our first digital strategy, which predates me, it's mid-2000s, it was essentially invest in this area, start building stuff. And that's what happened. By late 2009, we had over 80 websites and microsites operating across 11 different technology platforms. You can probably imagine that that was quite a tricky portfolio to manage. There was a lot of duplication in it. It didn't really make a great deal of sense. So our second strategy was to undo the mess the first strategy created. We needed to consolidate what we had that was useful and turn it into something that we could manage and grow. We had that strategy for three years, strategy two, and it's given us the current state that we have right now. And it's not a bad place to be in. So right now we have around four million visits to our website each month. We're liked by millions of people on our social profiles. And last year, 20% of our income came through our digital channels. That's around 100, well, it's over 100 million pounds. So within that, the things that we do, we do e-commerce. If you look at our website, you will see that we do not do that very well. It will get better soon. Um, but this is essentially people buying stuff from our shops, from a catalogue that we have, and buying merchandise when they participate in our events. In a similar vein, we do payments, and we now do this quite well. So payments are when people donate money to us. And they'll usually do this using credit cards, debit cards, they can use PayPal, they can donate to us through text messages. Um, and they'll either do this once or they'll do it regularly using their bank account through a standing order or, or a direct debit. We also do events. Around 650,000 people buy a place in one of our event series each year through our website. Race for Life is probably the event series that we're most famous for. And once they've bought a place in one of our events, they will usually fundraise for us. And they'll usually fundraise using Just Giving or one of the platforms that we've built ourselves. Now this year, around half of those 650,000 entries will be done on a mobile phone. Um, and almost a third of those entries will pay for their entry fee using PayPal. I would have been laughed at if I said to my colleagues three years ago that this would be the case. The pace of change is just unbelievably fast. 
So we do events. We're also a publisher. We have thousands and thousands of pages of content about each type of cancer. It covers symptoms, treatments, drugs, side effects, coping information. We have stats on UK incidents, survival, mortality. Um, we have loads of information about the research we're doing and the research that we've done. We operate a database of all of the UK cancer trials, ours and the trials others are doing, um, that are happening right now and we help people to apply for those trials. After the NHS, we're one of the biggest health publishers in the UK. We're also a community. Uh, we run a site called Cancer Chat and it's a platform for people affected by cancer, which is safe and secure, it's fully moderated, they can support each other in a very personal way and they can get support from a CAUK nurse. So strategy two has given us some really great results. And in some areas, we see ourselves as being in a possession of real strength. So strategy two, though, has not actually taken us as far as we could have gone. And that's because all we're really doing at the moment is feeling digital. And feeling digital isn't, I think, a sustainable setting for the future. Let me explain what I mean by feeling digital. When you're feeling digital, there isn't really a deep change to what you're doing. You might just change the tools that you're using. So for example, embracing new technologies or platforms or concepts, they could be website design, software development, using social media. You're probably doing that just to refine and optimize what you already have. You might be implementing substitution strategies where you use digital to replicate an existing thing that isn't digital. So a paper form could be turned into a form on a website, or you might turn a brochure into a web page. You might also automate a process that was manual um, without changing the process. You're probably keeping organisation models, whether they're reporting structures or operating procedures, as they were and based on what was working before. These are all characteristics, I think, of feeling digital. And feeling digital isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it's quite a sensible way to be right now. I just don't believe it's a formula for success in the future. For us, for CRUK, we have done some amazing things while we have been feeling digital. <coughs> So I'm going to finally come on to explaining just how hacktivists, clicktivists and slacktivists are helping us beat cancer sooner. When we talk about a promising piece of research or what looks like a possible breakthrough, we tend to end any statement we're making with words like this. What we've seen has real promise, but it's at a very early stage. Years more work needs to be done before this will be useful for patients. It's always a mood killer, but it's a reality because research takes time. We thought getting people closer to our research could help them understand why the process takes time, and we also thought there might be an opportunity to speed things up a little bit. So do you remember that planet that was discovered by citizen scientists? They were planet hunters in 2012. We saw that, and we were really inspired by this. So it brings me on to hacktivists. This is um, the, Google, the definition for hacktivists I found on Google, so it must be true. I've, <laughs> I've taken a bit of artistic license in applying this definition because we haven't actually hacked into anything uh, in the work that we've done. I need to make that clear. <laughs> we've just worked with coders to use our own data. So just bear with me using this definition and see if you think it fits. 
So, in October 2012, we launched Cell Slider. It's a simple website that enables people like you or me to analyse slides of cells from a breast cancer study. We did this with Zooniverse. They were the brains behind Planet Hunters. It opened up our science to the public and enabled them for the first time to donate their time to participate in our research. In just three months, citizen scientists had used Cell Slider to analyse data that took our scientists, our pathologists, 18 months to analyse. It made it six times faster. And our citizen scientists achieved an equivalent level of accuracy to our pathologists. So this success gave us the confidence to look at something bigger, bolder and even more ambitious. We'd seen the growing market for mobile games, who hasn't? We knew about Angry Birds. Apparently at the end of 2013, every day people around the world were spending 380 years worth of time playing that game. Then of course came Candy Crush and I'm not sure what the big one is now, but we set ourselves the challenge of just tapping into a tiny fraction of that time and putting it to what we thought was slightly better use. So we wanted to gamify our gene data. We ran a hackathon. We brought a group of developers, scientists and gamers together for 48 hours. We locked them in a facility and asked them to take the data that we had and build some prototypes for games that could turn that into a fun experience, turn the, the data into a fun experience. A few months later, in February 2014, we launched Genes in Space, Play to Cure, the world's first mobile game to analyse real cancer data. The game is set in the future, it's in space. Your mission is to harvest valuable space dust. By plotting your route map, which is happening there on the screen, you're actually analysing genetic data and helping identify genetic problems that cause breast cancer, which are better detected by the human eye than the machines. After planning your route, you fly your spaceship through the space dust, which means you're having a second pass at the data. Now this game was hugely successful. We peaked at number 46 in the iTunes free app charts and we saw hundreds and hundreds of thousands of downloads. In the first four weeks, we had 1.5 million classifications. And in the first six months, there were 10 years of gameplay. Now while this, the accuracy was robust, it didn't quite match the standard achieved through Cell Slider. So for our next project, we wanted to build the accuracy of Cell Slider into a game with the appeal of genes in space. Reverse the Odds was born, and it was a collaboration with even more partners. We launched this towards the end of last year. It's a mobile puzzle game where you collect potions to transform a barren and desolate wasteland into an amazing wonderland. It's modelled on premium games, which usually require purchases to advance through the games. In our model, instead of paying for the potions, which are the mechanic to, to progress through the game, you earn them by doing some accurate analysis. So we show players a very simple tutorial explaining how to do analysis, and then 
they get rewarded when they get the analysis right. And right is when their analysis matches the analysis of the crowd. So with Cell Slider, we got through one million classifications in six months. With Genes in Space, we brought this time down to 12 weeks. It took us just two weeks to reach one million classifications with Reverse the Odds. So working with hacktivists has helped us speed up the research process. 18 months of work could theoretically be shrunk down to two weeks. So, clicktivists. Here's the Google definition. Um, so, a low effort way of supporting something using the web. Almost four in 10 cancer diagnoses are, diagnoses are preventable, and tobacco is the biggest culprit here. Now, in March this year, MPs voted in favour of plain standardised cigarette packs. We think this is going to help prevent young people from taking up smoking, and we think that's going to save lives. This has been a big victory for public health and a big step towards CRUK's goal of a tobacco-free generation. So we played a key role in influencing this decision through our The Answer Is Plain campaign. It was a very comprehensive campaign over three years, and what I'm sharing today are just a few of the digital highlights. We launched our plain packaging back in April 2012 on YouTube and on our social platforms. It kicked off with this unscripted video which shows the appeal of glitzy cigarette packaging to children. So that was totally unscripted. Those were genuine reactions. Um, this video was timed to launch with the government's public consultation on standard packs. It's the most watched film um, we've produced to date. Over 600,000 people watched it within the first few weeks of, of launch. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but it pointed people to the campaigning part of our website where they could sign our petition or take some other action like emailing their campaign or sharing the campaign with their networks. So this led to an 80,000 strong petition which we handed to the Department of Health in August 2012 as the consultation was coming to a close. In the autumn of 2013, the government announced an independent review to examine the evidence for standard PACs. That November, we launched another video. I won't show you this one, um, but what this on our social platforms, um, and we, we did this to keep the pressure up, this video shows what appears to be children smoking. Of course, they're not smoking. It appears to be children smoking in developing nations. But as more is revealed, you realise the children are here in the UK. It was called the word back home, the world back home. And we were trying to expose the links the tobacco industry goes to internationally to recruit young smokers. But also we were trying to highlight what the industry can get away with here through on-pack marketing. Again, the video pointed people to the campaigning part of our website where they could take action. This one was seen by more than 310,000 people and was more controversial because a lot of people thought that we were um, getting children to smoke. Anyway, at the start of this year, the campaign was on the home stretch. The government announced its intention to lay regulations for standard packs in the last parliament. 
Um, we did more work to ensure that there was a successful vote in the House of Commons. Our last push had us build Twitter tools where people could tweet their MPs and email, and then legislation passed through the House of Commons on the 11th of March. Five days later, the legislation was also voted through the House of Lords. So we can expect to see standard packs on the shelves in May next year. So over three years, around 90,000 of our amazing supporters took action on this campaign, from signing petitions, to tweeting and emailing their MPs, to even visiting Parliament. So here, clicktivists helped us influence public policy, and we believe this policy will help us save lives. Selectivists. So this is kind of more or less the same definition of clicktivists, really, but I've got three examples, so I needed three made-up digital words. <laughs> um, so I'm going to take you back to the 18th of March last year. Hopefully you saw, participated in, or at least heard about the No Makeup Selfie. Now let me be very clear about this. The idea did not come from Cancer Research UK. This was not us. Our social team noticed a number of people posting selfies for cancer awareness. And when this happened on our profiles, we liked them. So on Facebook, we've got a couple of profiles for some of our brands. We only have one on Twitter. But we, we liked it and appreciated people posting on our profile. And then we saw a profile appear on Facebook, which was supporting this selfies for awareness idea. And after a while, people started asking whether it was our campaign. So we tweeted this. Our social media manager kept an eye on Twitter overnight, and by the next morning, it had been retweeted a few hundred times. Now at the time, a few hundred tweets was quite a big number for us. So Aaron got into the office pretty early, and he found a colleague, a female colleague, and created the cheapest and most successful ad we have ever made. Here it is. We posted this image on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Google Plus and LinkedIn early in the morning and within minutes it had been shared thousands of times. People started turning their selfie into something useful that would make a difference by making a small donation. And selfies people were posting started to change people started including proof of their donation rather than just saying this is a selfie for cancer awareness. By midday, there was just such an excitement in the office. Something was happening that we hadn't seen before, but we knew it was exciting. We were speculating about how far this would go. Like ambitious numbers on day one were half a million pounds. We were hoping to get that, a big number like that. Within 24 hours, more than a million pounds had been raised. These, this million pounds was made up of a very large number of very small donations. On the next day, the atmosphere in the office was electric. The selfie craze started hitting the traditional media overnight. And celebrities started getting involved. Here's a few. I could list out more, but even Richard Branson did a selfie. A day later, we had well over £2 million donated. We were a bit uncomfortable about sharing the numbers because we just weren't sure how real the numbers were, and we, we weren't sure if we could believe our data, so we were being conservative. We said on day three 
that more than two million pounds, or two million pounds was donated, it was more. But our posts and our tweets were reaching millions of people. These numbers, 10 million reach, half of them through paid advertising, were just huge numbers that were off the charts. Facebook hadn't seen them before. The public were getting really hungry to know how much they were raising and what the impact of selfies for cancer awareness would be. It had gone global by day two, day three. So this map shows where people were doing no makeup selfies. The size of the circle shows volume, but you can see all over the English speaking world, people were doing it. So we finally, on about day four, announce the number. More than eight million pounds was raised in just a few days from very small donations. Our website took more donations over four days than we had seen in the previous two years. This post was clicked on a million times. That was astounding. Facebook had never seen anything like it. We had never seen anything like it. Thanks to Slacktivists, it's been possible for us to fund another 10 long-term drug trials. Now, of course, six months later, less than six months later, the ice bucket challenge took off. Now, we thought that this would happen again. We didn't think it would happen again so soon. And that raised hundreds of millions of pounds for motor neuron disease and tens of millions of pounds for other causes which jumped onto the bandwagon. We didn't get involved with Ice Bucket Challenge, but a lot of our supporters did an Ice Bucket Challenge for us anyway, so we did see some benefit out of it, but we didn't have a managed response to it like we did for the No Makeup Selfie. So those are my three cases about clicktivists, slacktivists and hacktivists. Um, but I'm not sharing these to tell you that we're setting the standard for how you capitalise on digital in the fundraising and the research and the policy world. Actually, in all of these cases, because as an organisation we're just feeling digital, I personally would say we didn't make the most of each opportunity. Now, please don't get me wrong. These have been great and successful pieces of work delivered by very talented teams. They've been great successes. They could have been better though, I think, if we were operating in a way where digital wasn't thought about as a separate thing. So I'm going to explain why. First of all, citizen science. What we've done there is introduce a digital thing alongside a very established way of working, research. It isn't quite clear yet how research teams can easily integrate citizen science participation into their current ways of working. So the time savings that we can theoretically achieve might not materialise as, as actual time savings in a live research project right now. There's more work we would need to do to make that happen. And we could run out of data. We don't yet know if we can generate enough of that type of data to fuel this gamified way of analysing it. So it might not even be sustainable. Our plain packaging campaign, it was an excellent campaign. It was truly integrated. We had a lot of offline activity, we had a lot of traditional media and we did a lot of digital stuff 
We had a whole lot of face-to-face -face stuff over the, and we did stuff over the phone as well. It was brilliantly integrated and we absolutely got the result we wanted. But I don't think we made it easy enough for clicktivists to take action and the numbers could have been higher. All the while our campaign was going on, the tobacco industry were opposing us. One of their indirect ways of opposing us was through Smokers' Rights Group. There was one called Forest and they created a um, campaign called Hoop and that stood for Hands Off Our Packs. Now Hoop, the Hoop campaign used some more questionable tactics to collect petition signatures but what they did was quickly deliver huge numbers of people to mobilise against standard packs. The fact is many of the people didn't realise that's what they were doing but they had very social and shareable content and they made it very, very simple for people to show their support. With our hard-hitting content, which people engaged with, which triggered a real response from many people, we deserved higher numbers. Now with the benefit of hindsight, it's easy for me to say we should have made it simpler for people to sign our petition. Ideally, it should have been where they were watching our video. And I'm afraid the campaigning part of our website just required too many clicks and a little bit more effort than your average hacktivist is up for. With No Makeup Selfie, I think we could have made at least a million pounds more, possibly huge amounts more. Now I know I've just presented it in a way where it seemed like we were running a very tight ship, but actually there was a lot of activity and a lot of frenetic activity going on in the background. At the start, a small number of donations were going to the wrong charity. Our post suggested people text to donate or go to our website. The text to donate number we used is a number that we rent from a third party which we share with other charities. If you were texting us and your phone auto-corrected the word beat to something else, you will have been supporting some other charity. For example, if you auto-corrected to bear, you were sponsoring an Arctic polar bear. Uh, and then when people got text messages, when people um, texted to donate, they got a reply message, which had a different number on the reply message. But when people were posting proof of their donation, their friends were using the reply message to text to, which also didn't find its way to us needed a bit of manual intervention to make that money come to us. So we were doing a lot of work in the background with our agency partner to keep the text experience working. And that's great, we cobbled things together. But in 2014, you would think that an organisation like ours, which is the size of our organisation, would have an exclusive text code that we could use ourselves, in the same way that we have exclusive phone numbers and exclusive email addresses that are ours. But that was minor compared to what happened with the donate part of our website. Um, again, I've used a bit of artistic license in my bio when I said our website was robust and, and stood to the challenge. That's sort of true. Um, the donate part of our website has been a weakness that we had been living with for quite a few years. The donate experience, if you have ever donated to us in the past, um, was created back in 2005 or 2006 and it was built for a different era, it struggled to cope when it had more than 10 consecutive users on it. So when surges in demand happened, which they would often happen when something happens to high profile people, like for example Jade Goody when she passed away in 2009, 
our donate site would fall over. So our solution was to point people coming to our donate site at Just Giving, where they could also make a one-off donation to us. Now the problem in doing that is people only make one-off donations. A much more valuable donation for us is a regular gift. So in pointing all of that enormous amount of traffic that we were getting at Just Giving meant our regular gifts suddenly fell off a cliff. Um, and that probably cost us about a million pounds worth of missed regular donations. And that's a lot more than the cost of the new donation solution that we have now. So the selfie craze was also global. We were talking about pounds and we were talking about the UK. We were in no way making it relevant to the vast majority of people taking part. This was happening in the borderless digital world, but we were talking about the UK. And we don't have a, a foreign payment option, so it's not like we did the wrong thing. We just hadn't really thought about it. So I think we miss making even more of these opportunities because we're just feeling digital. Digital isn't part of our DNA. It's something separate and different. The way we're structured and the way we work keep us thinking about digital as something different. And I think this is the problem with digital in many charities today. I suspect this problem exists in many organisations today, particularly ones that are more than 10 years old. When is the last time you woke up in the morning, I would imagine you picked up your phone, because we know that's what everyone does, checked your messages, had a look at the news, did what you need to do, and then thought, that was a really satisfying digital experience. How often do you think, I'm going to go and do something digital? We don't. Digital is just all around us. We've integrated it into our lives. Most of us don't think of it as something separate because it isn't. It just blends in with what we do and we now start doing similar things in different ways um, as a result of digital. But when we get to work, it isn't like that. We step back in time. Digital is something different. I think organisations need to start being digital, like we are when we aren't at work. So what is being digital? It's when digital strategy thinks beyond the internet and its ability to substitute physical channels. Physical and digital are blended and contextually aware to create new outcomes, smarter things, user value and benefits. Being digital is when you invent new ways of working that enable flexibility, autonomy, and pace in adopting new things. I think Uber is a nice, easy example of being digital. They've created a new way of working for the taxi industry, which I don't think they like. But cars are technology we've had for ages. So are mobile phones, and so is the mobile internet. Software people, processors, hardware, they've come together, they've come together or Uber has brought them together, to give us something very disruptive that's creating value and it's also creating disvalue all over the place. So I'm just using them as an example, I think, of being digital. I'll let you decide what you want to make of them as an organisation. So a while ago, I mentioned that we're one year into our third digital strategy. So I thought I'd show you this strategy. This is our plan to make the shift from feeling digital to being digital. The idea is for us to make a deliberate digital transformation so we can keep pace with the world around us. That's the goal, by the way. We want to keep pace. 
an explicit aim of our strategy is to get rid of roles that are called digital because it actually just should be part of everyone's role. Now, the key parts of this strategy are to focus on giving our customers, and by the way, customers could be a fundraiser, they could be a patient, a GP who wants information about cancer, an MP, any of our constituents. We want to give our customers an experience that's valuable and meets their needs, and we recognise their needs will keep changing. We need to focus on making our operations able to give our customers and our people what they need. And we need the organisation to have a being digital mindset. And we need to be digital because we need to keep pace with people. The digital revolution is absolutely disrupting charities. I think it might be making us more generous. I'm not sure. I think that's possible. Now, I think this is a glimpse of how the future of fundraising is going to look. More power into the hands of people who care about causes and an ability to do something about what they care about almost instantly. So at the end of January this year, Alan Barnes was attacked outside his home in Gateshead on a Sunday night. So he suffered a broken, broken collarbone. He was extremely distressed. He was too frightened to return to his home after the attack and it was widely reported in the media. A lady named Katie Cutler, who's just a regular member of the public, read about Alan and she was moved. She set up this GoFundMe page. Her plan was to raise 500 pounds to help Alan out towards the cost of relocating so he could feel safe and secure again. Setting up this page probably took not much more effort than setting up an eBay page. Alan's family asked Katie to close the page when it hit 330 pounds. It was distributed by, through social media, the media picked it up, it was distributed further through social media. All it took was an article and a process that's pretty easy for any of us to do. And now this is one of the biggest fundraisers of the year. So how are the hyphen vests, and what I really mean by that is just connected population, how are they going to help us beat cancer sooner? Well, I think we're going to, well, we're making some new things that will make it feel like anyone can have their own charity, which supports an area of our work that they're interested in, and their little charity can exist in whatever platform they like. Putting more control into people's hands so they can easily create things that are more relevant to them, I think is the direction of travel for us. Using digital as the reason to change and make this possible is how connected people will help us beat cancer sooner. Thank you very much for listening.